0: Eureka Springs is a little tourist town nestled in the Ozark Mountains. Population just over 2,000, not counting the supernatural folk. The town is a hotbed of paranormal activity and has been for as long as people have lived here. Guess they can thank the mystical energy from Underground Springs for that. All manner of monsters seem drawn to it. When bad things happen that normal folk can't explain, I look into it. My name is Vincent Van Getty. By day, I'm a newspaper reporter for the Lovely County Record. By night, I'm a paranormal investigator looking into all things that go bump in the... Well, you know. It's season three of Ozark Whispers, so if you're just tuning in, go check out seasons one and two. These episodes will be here when you get back. I don't much like being woken up in the middle of the night, but with the series of dreams that have been rattling around in my head lately, waking up at 3am every morning no matter how potent the sleeping potion I used. Trouble sleeping is nothing new for me. I spent most of my life dreaming the future until a few years ago, and even without those visions I still sometimes find myself unable to slumber peacefully. It might be the grisly details of a potent curse ruining someone's life. Maybe a monster victim I wasn't able to save. Or perhaps my brain just can't stop going over cold case details I never completely solved. Every case I record for a podcast episode is solved, but I'm not out here with a 100% solve rate by any means. That's the kind of thing about being an investigator, whether you deal with humans or things that go bump in the night. Some things you look into don't always get to solve. Just as frustrating. Some cases you do put into the completed pile leave so much emotional scarring that it doesn't feel solved. What can I say? In the world I live in, things are rarely tied neatly with a pretty little bow. Magic and monsters just don't tend to operate that way for some reason. It's kind of rude when you think about it. So, for the sixth night in a row, I grab a beer, sit down at the tiny bar in my kitchen under a flickering fluorescent light, and wait until the details of my repeated vivid dream fade enough from my skull so I can close my eyes for a few minutes before work. If I'm lucky, I might get in bed around 5am, about an hour before my alarm goes off. But that was a couple hours from now. A couple hours of sitting and wondering about this dream, replaying it over and over. Most folks who imagine the paranormal but never witness it themselves tend to think events are spontaneous and random, but such is rarely the case. Usually business with the supernatural occurs in a pattern, repeated actions, etc. So when I had the same dream for six nights in a row, I knew to pay attention to it. It meant something. The dream seems simple enough. I'm walking through trees that seem stuck in a single season, one with many different colored leaves yellows, browns, oranges, and reds, but the trees are species I don't recognize. Their bark is weathered and aged, yet it remains strong, as if frozen in time by a kind of magic. And then she shows up, the woman wearing a long gown made of fallen leaves, each fresh as though just plucked from a tree. When she walks, the leaves on her outfit make no noise, not even the ones that crunch under her feet. Her skin is the color of clay, her hair a rustic orange. Beneath her crown of balloon flowers, arranged in a perfect little wreath for her head, are a pair of small antlers, jagged and maybe a foot long. I don't know what she is, but when she gets close enough, I see her eyes are quite different from mine. The eyes are yellow, her pupils narrow black slits like that of a fox. She opens her mouth to speak, and I can tell something is troubling her, but I can't hear what she's saying because a cold wind is blowing. It's loud and it rustles up all the leaves. Soon it starts to hail, grows incredibly cold, and I bolt awake. If only I could hear what she said, then maybe I'd know what she wanted, and why I can't get a complete night of sleep. It's at this point I realize there was some odor coming from my bedroom. The shack I'm renting is a little cabin nestled in some trees on Owen Street. It's old. There's only one bedroom, and there's always a draft. But hey, you try getting a place to live on a journalist's salary. Gina still isn't speaking to me after I got my old loft smited by Zeus. It also happened to be one floor above her cafe. The building was historic, and insurance refused to cover the damage. So Gina lost her cafe, and I lost my home. She didn't have the money to rebuild, and I didn't have the money to repay her. Understandably, she was quite angry at me over this even if I didn't throw the lightning bolt myself. The floor squeaked as I cautiously moved into my room to investigate the odor, which smelled of fresh pine needles. And not the kind of smell that potpourri has, but the kind it wishes it had. A fresh forest scent. I pulled back my black comforter and looked to find the source of the scent. The cabin normally smells musty, but now my nose wasn't detecting that. Now my nose smelled 1,000 autumn-flavored candles in every whiff. Lifting my head, I found it, a leaf brooch, made of what appeared to be brass and painted orange with specks of brown on the tips. The brooch was about half the size of my hand and felt light. This hadn't been here when I went to bed, and that meant something had come into my cabin and placed it here. It smelled richly of earth and pine needles, truly a pleasant sensation when I held it under my nose. Examining the metal, I realized there was no iron mixed in which meant this lovely piece of jewelry was probably made by fey hands, and a couple pieces in my head clicked together on the puzzle. The woman in my dreams was a fey, a fairy creature that inhabits a parallel realm to our own home called Tirna Nog. And if someone was trying to rope me into fey business, I needed to find a way out of it before the noose got too tight. Fey politics are dangerous and complex. It's a reason I avoid the creatures like the plague, it seems one wanted my attention, and I had a feeling that if I wore this brooch, I'd be signing up for more trouble than I wanted. Fortunately, I knew of fay here in Eureka Springs, who might just be able to give me some answers, and I would be in his shop first thing tomorrow morning. Of course, I didn't know just how difficult that would be. When my alarm went off on my phone the following morning, I realized something pretty quick. Things were cold. Really cold. Colder than the start of November should be in Arkansas. Hopping out of bed, I quickly jumped back in to wrap a quilt around me before I got up once more. Looking outside, I saw all my windows were frosted over, and it was snowing like crazy outside. The power was also out. I remarked that the forecast for today was supposed to be sunny and 47 degrees. This was way too early in the season for snow, let alone a blizzard. I checked my battery-powered thermostat hanging on the kitchen window and saw it was minus five degrees outside. I poured myself a bowl of cereal, used the last of the hot water in the tank for a five-minute shower, and bundled up for my destination. Rapid weather shifts had me sure I was dealing with a Fae emergency. Fae and other fairies are broken down into four royal courts, each ruled by a queen presiding over a season from spring to winter. Though they resided in another world, the seasonal courts impacted our world's weather or patterns. And something was not right. It took me about half an hour to scrape my little economy car and get it started and warmed up. I couldn't even get into the thing for the first fifteen minutes because of freezing rain that must have fallen this morning and froze the doors over. But when I did finally back out of my cabin's little driveway, I drove slow. Eureka can be a nightmare town to drive in when the roads are covered in snow and ice. The benefits of being a mountain village, I guess. There weren't too many cars on the road at 9 a.m., not that Eureka Springs is a bustling metropolis or anything. Thankfully, my destination wasn't downtown, which truly does have suicidal roads and icy weather. You couldn't convince my Portland ass to drive those roads. I knew better. I headed up toward Holiday Island a little bit, until I came to a place called Summer Sage Nursery. It was owned by the only Fey I knew in town, a man named Albin Rudell. I pulled into her nursery gravel lot, and was careful not to hit his giant wooden sign out front. I opened the door in time for a blast of arctic air to fill my face. I swore and headed toward the front entrance of the business. Stepping inside the round metal building, I was greeted with warm swampy air of a greenhouse. A youthful man with long blonde hair sat fussing with a rose bush, working to clear snow off it. I called over to him and he turned my way. I asked him if he'd had to haul in all the plants really quick, and he confirmed as much, not expecting the cold snap. Then I leaned forward and said, I know this is Faye business, Albin. Can you give me a little information? He looked at tad apprehensive, his emerald eyes glancing at the front door. Albin belonged to the Summer Court, but made his home in the human world for personal reasons. Even still, he answered to the Summer Queen. Albin revealed to me this was no summer court business, so there was little he could tell me. But, when I showed him the leaf brooch, his face paled a bit. I informed him that I knew he wasn't stupid, and even if he didn't belong to the court that was causing this trouble, surely he was hearing rumors. I was willing to bet that some sort of magic he used to keep his luscious flowers and bushes alive year-round was partially thanks to sprites. Smaller fairies, lower on the totem pole. Sprites may not have much raw power, but they do trade information. They listen to much and say much to the right listeners. Again, Alpin glanced nervously at the front door, and I patiently reminded him of how I heroically rescued his little nursery from a rampaging fire mage. I suggested he might owe me a favor. He threw his hands up and gave me a quick, okay, okay. The leaf brooch, he said, clearly belonged to the Autumn Court. It contained powerful fey magic and was always worn by the Autumn Champion, servant of the Autumn Queen, Fomar. He explained each of the fey courts had a champion, a person who served the queen and carried out the will of the court. I described the woman in my dream, and he confirmed that was Queen Fomar, alright. What she wanted with me, Alden couldn't say, but he knew from the looks of the weather that things were out of sorts in a bad way. The last warning the Summer gave me before I left was not to wear the brooch unless I was ready to swear allegiance to the Autumn Court. Fair, tricky like that. Albin wasn't so much, because he lived in the human world for so long and was used to our customs from doing business with people each and every day. But Fae that resided in Ter They were sneaky souls. Accept a gift from them, and you wind up in their debt. They decide how you'll pay it back. And gifts can be simple things, like a sandwich or a cookie they've prepared, and debts can sometimes be fatal. And if they caught you wearing their jewelry, you were screwed into service with their court. It was a position I didn't want to be in, but it also looked like Queen Fomar wasn't going to leave me alone until I answered her call, even if that meant answering it with a big fat no. I had no idea why or how she'd summoned all this winter weather but I had a sneaking suspicion Eureka wasn't going to see the sun again until I dealt with this fey business. (sighs) Excellent. This day just keeps getting better. Following things logically, the next sequence of my events should probably look like this. I needed to visit the Autumn Queen because, from what Albin told me, the fey queens were pretty much forbidden to do much of anything in the human realm. They could visit, sure, but... Taking direct action was usually a violation of an ancient bargain the queens had all agreed to. That's why they had champions and other servants to do their bidding for them. And it seems the Autumn Queen wanted me to do her bidding. No thanks. I got back in my car and headed over toward Lake Leatherwood. About half a mile from the eastern shore in the middle of the woods was a cave that contained the Rune Spring, a direct gateway to tir Nanoog. As for how to control which part of that world I ended up in, well, I was just going to have to make an educated guess. Maybe the little leaf brooch would guide me in once I tossed it in the water. Hopping out of my car on Vista View Road, I saw nothing but rough snowy terrain and forest ahead of me. Joy. The wind was even colder than this morning, and I did not want this to become Eureka's permanent climate. So, I started the long hike north toward the Faerun Spring. Snow crunched under my boots for the next hour. For Halloween, I went to a work party dressed as a downhill skier just a few days before. People said it was a dumb costume, but who's warm now? This paranormal investigator. That's who. I didn't hear them coming until one howled to the top of the hill behind me. The slope downward had been treacherous, but I was at the bottom of a hill now about 75 feet below what appeared to be two beasts made of snow and ice. Adjusting for distance, I guess they were about waist-high on me if they stood at my side. I did not intend to let them get close enough to measure. Their eyes were glowing blue, and they looked like bulging Dobermans with clumps of snow and ice covered at random parts of their body. And then they took off down the slope toward me. So I started hauling tail for the cave I could see ahead of me. That's where the spring was. And I hoped beyond all hopes that they couldn't swim, or even doggy paddle. I could hear barking behind me as I rushed ducking under limbs and leaping over creeks, trying to put as much distance between us as possible. Unfortunately for myself, these creatures were made for this weather, and I was made for sipping hot cocoa on a comfy couch when this kind of weather struck. The barking got louder as I finally reached the cave and ran inside. I should have walked inside because I slipped almost immediately and fell down the slope into the cave. It wasn't so much a rock structure sticking out of the ground as it was a crevice about twenty feet long and ten feet wide that sloped downward with a few boulders, one of which I banged my head on tumbling down. The crevice went about thirty feet underground, and when I finally came to a halt on a rock shelf, I spit out a little blood from a split lip. The room stopped spinning just as the two icy hounds walked into the cave and crouched about twenty feet from me. Well, this is just lovely, I muttered. And that's when he showed up, a rather large man wearing a fuzzy coat and goggles. His hair was colored some sort of bluish white, and he must have been about eight feet tall. Even under the red shirt he was wearing I saw bulging muscles, and on his back sat a huge claymore blade. The man's eyes glowed blue, and I used my superior investigative brain to finally figure out who stood before me, the winter quartz champion, and the animals chasing me were likely fey ice hounds. The man introduced himself as Broderick Kelson, champion of the Winter Court, servant of Queen Tierney. His voice was deep and carried a detached cold tone to it. He informed me what his beasts were about to do to me wasn't personal, but he had been ordered to kill anyone from the Autumn Court in the human world on this day. When I informed him that I wasn't a member of the Autumn Court, he told me that I sure smelled like one, and that was enough for him. Stupid leaf brooch. I should have left the thing at home, I thought. He clicked his tongue and the fae beast on the right charged at me right as I reached into my pocket, desperate for some sort of enchanted item to help me right this second. Unfortunately, I had none. Most of my enchanted items were still in boxes because my cabin was actually smaller than my loft, the items that survived the smiting anyway. As the hound body slammed me to the ground and pushed me on my back, I reached out of my pocket and drove my keys into its chest. The hound yip and jumped back, its chest smoking something fierce, and I smiled. The winter champion glowered at me. Thank goodness for the iron in my car keys, I muttered. The icy hound was still smoking some on its chest, but now the other stepped forward, and I saw they meant to charge me at once. I got lucky with the keys the first time, but I doubt they'd make the same mistake again. To his credit, Roddick actually complimented me for my ingenuity and said he could see why the Autumn Queen wanted me. Unfortunately, he noted, keys made for poor self-defense weapons when the enemy sees them coming, as his hounds now did. I squinted, just before they could charge again. I saw them back up a few paces, looking confused. Then the cave filled with the scent of spicy cinnamon and smoky wood. I dared look behind me, and hovering on the water was a fae from my dreams. She stood there, smiling. Then she said something in a rich alto voice that sounded like wind whispering through the trees. Her magic was powerful, and there was a part of me that wanted to drop to one knee and serve her this instant. Of course, that's exactly what she wanted, and I knew she was pressing my senses with her magic. I fought the urge to pledge myself to her service, but the fay was overwhelming in beauty and raw magic power. I took several ragged breaths, and then avoided eye contact by looking at the ground. She walked over to the edge of the pool and made me a simple offer. Her old champion, it seems, had disappeared. She did not know if the woman was dead, just that she wasn't around anymore, and the Fae wanted me to take her place. When I asked why she wanted me of all people, she said she'd been watching me for some time, saw how I'd worked tirelessly to defend this town against magical threats, and she wanted that same fierce protective attitude for her court. Broderick made no move against the Queen, nor did his beasts, and I gathered they were waiting to see what I would do. The queen informed me that with her champion missing there was an imbalance of power, and the winter court was making moves on her kingdom, and that had the effect of autumn shortening in our world. When I told the queen that I had no intention of fighting wars for her, she assured me that that was unlikely to happen. Simply by having a new champion, the balance of power would be restored, and winter would retreat. What I learned this day was that fake courts are all about stalemates and power. If they could smash their rivals and absorb their kingdoms, they would. But each fake court was strong enough to take a good chunk out of the other, and if one court went to war with another and emerged victorious, they'd still be weak enough for the two remaining courts to immediately destroy them. But without a champion, the Autumn Court had no stalemate. Taking the mantle of Autumn Champion would apparently come with some sweet perks, like some powerful magic to wield, sprites and other servants at my disposal, and an increased lifespan. The obvious downside was I'd be putting on a collar and be at the call of this queen to do her bidding for life. There was no retiring from this position, apparently. You served until you died, by battle, by assassination, or whatever other violent means the other champions brought your life to an end with. I was about to reject her again when the icy hounds behind me started to growl and take a step forward. So I asked the queen a rather blunt question. If I turn you down, are you going to let those beasts devour me? She smiled and reminded me that she couldn't do much of anything in the human world, so she was actually quite powerless to save me. If, however, I suddenly became her champion, well then I'd have a buttload of power to use at my disposal and could protect myself. In fact, the winter champion would probably just up and leave altogether, not wishing to do battle with the newly crowned champion of a rival court. Not only that, but if I became her champion, the snowstorm would end and Eureka's weather would go back to normal. I couldn't deny how badly I was cornered. The options were, lose my life now, or probably lose it a little later. So I made the only choice I could and accepted her offer. The queen instructed me to pin the brooch to my front shirt, so I did. And the moment it was latched on, my coat was transformed into a glowing cloak of red and brown leaves. They were warm and radiated faint magic. I felt a raw energy coursing through my veins like never before. I'd never really wielded any crazy amounts of power in my life just utilized some enchanted items at opportune times, but now my body was tapping into the energy of the Autumn Queen and it felt... marvelous. A bigger smirk slowly grew across the Queen's face. She got what she wanted, and I guess I did too for the immediate future. I wanted to not die and for my town to not freeze. So yeah, technically I got my wishes, but I knew the bill would come due eventually. I turned to look at the entrance of the cave and Broderick was gone. There was no sign of his icy hounds, not even paw prints. When I turned back to the Autumn Queen, she informed me that I'd make a wise decision. And she looked forward to my lifelong service. Somehow I didn't feel as though I had made a wise decision, and a shiver went through my spine. She told me a Sprite would be available at my cabin by the time I returned home. Before I responded that I was more of a 7-up drinker, she sank back down into the spring and returned to her home. The hike back to my car was much easier than the hike here. I had much more strength, endurance, and stamina, courtesy of Fey magic, I'm sure. I wasn't exactly ungrateful for it, though I knew that it came at a terrible cost to my future. When I returned to my cabin, I found that electricity had been restored and the storm was already blowing out of town. Tomorrow, the weather should warm up at least back to normal fall temperatures in the low 50s, and nobody in town would be any the wiser about this freak blizzard. There waiting on my stove was a glowing red light about six inches tall, and as I got closer and turned on the kitchen light, I saw it was a sprite, a lower level fairy. She wore a flowing red dress made for her height and had a set of dragonfly-looking wings on her back. Her hair was as orange as some of the leaves on my cloak and it was cut short and spiked upward. She hovered in the air as I approached and bowed her head. The sprite introduced herself as Avalon and said she was here to serve me in any way she could to make my life easier on behalf of the Autumn Queen. Avalon remarked that my current headquarters were rather filthy, and she offered to have it fixed up remarkably. I sarcastically responded that I would much rather her restore my old loft in Gina's cafe than waste energy fixing up this dump. And before I knew it, she bowed and vanished. I chuckled and thought, there's no way. But sure enough, the next morning, Gina called me and told me to show up at the old site of her restaurant. I did, and I was amazed to find the building as good as new. Better than new. The bricks were clean and looked handcrafted in a faded pink color. The windows were beyond crystal clear and had a feeling that made one want to come inside and eat a meal. Gina took me inside and showed me the fully stocked kitchen, and above, my loft good as it was before I moved in. Again, better. There were carvings in the molds depicting fey moments in history, and the walls were painted in muted fresh colors. I was floored. Avalon stood in the corner of my loft and asked, does it please you? She looked rather excited for me to see it all, and all I could do was nod and tell her that it was perfect. About that time, a giant white biscuit-colored Samoyed came out of my old bedroom and sat at my feet, eyes looking up at me expectantly. Gina frowned, and I looked over at the sprite. "'Who is this?' I asked, not wanting to know the answer. The sprite happily informed me that this was the Autumn Hound, a fey spirit animal that would accompany me at all times for my personal protection. His name was Celosia. You gonna require a pet deposit if it's magic and I don't get a say in the matter? I asked Gina. She just rolled her eyes and muttered something before leaving the room. Later that night, after an awkward day at work with a dog that literally wouldn't leave my side, I stood in the kitchen while Gina made some sort of stew for the next day. She carefully warned me about the dangers of what I'd gotten myself into and said she could feel heavy fey magic all through the building. Makes sense, since they built it overnight. She suggested that I best find a way out of this deal ASAP. All of these perks looked great now, but the queen could call me at a minute's notice to do any of her bidding, and some of it might not be compatible with my human morals. There would also probably be unexpected consequences of this deal too, she warned. About that time she asked that I hand her a large metal stirring spoon on the counter next to me. I grabbed it only to let go in an instant. (sighs) My hand smoked from where I'd touched the thing, and I yiped big time, put my fingers in my mouth. They were burning something fierce. The hell was that? I asked in a muffled tone. Gina just shook her head and said, here was apparently unexpected consequence number one. While I was using all of this fey power, apparently I also shared their weaknesses, including iron. Crud. I needed to find a way out of this and fast. Serving Queen Fomar might make me popular in the Autumn Court but it also made me enemies with the other three courts and queens. And by carrying this power with me around town, I'd essentially put a target on my back that might just threaten the very people I'd spent the last several years protecting. Oh boy, this just gets better and better.